Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the corporate tax provisions of President Biden's Made in America tax plan. In particular, the proposal to raise the corporate tax rate. President Biden's Made in America tax plan proposes substantial changes to the corporate tax code. The plan is a hot topic right now and receiving substantial media coverage. In today's episode, we'll discuss a few reasons for all the chatter. First, changing the corporate tax law feels a little bit like deja vu all over again because Congress recently enacted several sweeping corporate tax law changes under President Trump. Second, the plan is large from an economic perspective, aiming to raise at least $1 trillion, yes, that's trillion with a T, of new corporate tax revenue over the next 15 years. Third, as taxes become an increasingly politicized issue, the plan faces strong opposition from many Republicans, which could threaten Biden's goal of passing bipartisan legislation. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. So first up, let's talk about the fact that the dust hasn't even settled on the last set of corporate tax law changes Congress enacted, and here they go again wanting to change things. That's right. It was just December 23rd, 2017, that former President Trump signed the so-called Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or TCJA, into law. At the time, it was the biggest tax law change we'd seen in a generation. The last time we'd passed something this big, it was the mid-80s under Reagan, which was before most, if not all, of the university students that we teach had even been born. Uh, Spoiler alert, we're old. (laughs) Uh, But yes, the core of the tax code had been pretty stable for about 30 years. And, you know, Congress does tweak the tax code almost on an annual basis in some really small way. I think of it like a routine maintenance plan for your taxes. But these major overhauls or tax reforms, they used to be very rare. So the 1980 changes that you were talking about, they were made in 1986. And it was actually called the Tax Reform Act because it was such a big, comprehensive set of changes. And many people characterized the TCJA as tax reform as well. So basically, we had 30 years between tax reform, if you will. And now it seems like they might be becoming a little bit more common. So that leads to the question of what is the difference between just a tax change and a tax reform? I know that you initially took exception to people calling the TCJA a tax reform. So talk a little bit about why that was and how are you feeling about it now? Well, I'm just a skeptical person in general. So I was skeptical that what they were pitching as tax reform was really just them relabeling tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy. But, uh, you know, we've had some time to see what those provisions really are in the package as a whole. And I think it's fair to say, especially when I think about the changes that they've made that impact how how the U.S. taxes multinational corporations, that was reform. Those were substantial changes. This was not just a tax cut. So I've come around. This was reform. Okay, that's very mature of you. I'm trying to grow as a person. So, okay, it seems like we can agree that Congress just reformed the tax code. And there could be an argument made that they're trying to reform it again. So I think the big question or one of the big questions we're trying to tackle today is why are we facing this potential second tax reform within a four-year period when prior Mm -hmm. to that we had gone over 30 years before tax reforms? So the first answer is we need money. 
Uh, President Biden released this Made in America tax plan in conjunction with the American Jobs Plan. And that plan initially aimed to fund about $2 trillion of spending on infrastructure. So things like roads, bridges, and airports, but also other initiatives like providing clean drinking water and high-speed internet access to all Americans, funding investments in electric vehicles and R&D, and trying to grow the green economy in the U.S. And, you know, Lisa, Congress is just like the rest of us mere mortals. And when you and I want to spend $2 trillion on something, we either need to go make more money or we need to borrow it. And I think we all know that the U.S. has done quite a bit of borrowing in its lifetime. So Biden is proposing to fund a substantial chunk of this infrastructure spending with tax increases on U.S. corporations spread out over 15 years. Let's do a little back of the envelope math here to put this into perspective. The only way I know how to do math, by the way. Fair enough. All right. So the corporate tax collections over the last fiscal year in total were only $212 billion with a B. So raising $1 trillion with a T of additional corporate tax revenue, even spread over 15 years, would require a 30% increase in corporate tax collections annually. That is not a small number. I think that's so helpful for people to understand on multiple levels. So first, taxes are what fund our government, right? It's our, it's our main income source. And, you know, I'm ashamed to admit it, but it was only just a few years ago that I actually looked up our federal budget and <laughs> like 99% of all our government revenues comes from taxes. So if we want to spend more, we either need to borrow, which is going to be costly in its own way, or we have to raise taxes. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just a fact. And that can be a pretty tough pill to swallow if you're a taxpayer and suddenly you're asked to increase your contribution to that spending by 30% almost overnight. You know, if if someone came to me tomorrow and said, hey, I'm going to take 30% more of your paycheck in taxes, initially, I don't know that I'd be over the moon about that idea. Maybe if I took a second to really think about it, understand where the money was going, what it was being spent on, you know, maybe that would lessen the pain a little bit. But I think it's understandable that corporations and a lot of the Republican lawmakers who represent corporate interests are not like super thrilled about the prospect of like a 30% increase in their tax payments. So one of the reasons we're seeing proposed reforms just four years after we passed what I called a once in a generation reform is because of politics. The TCJA was passed by former President Trump and two Republican-controlled houses of Congress. They passed it without bipartisan support. That meant Democrats just really didn't have any say. They didn't have a say in what rates were chosen, what loopholes were closed, what loopholes were opened. None of it. And so now that they, the Democrats have a tenuous grasp on both houses of Congress, at least, you know, that, that tie-breaking vote in, in the Senate, um, as well as the White House, it's kind of like they've made it their mission to make sure that their voices are heard. They're going to make their mark on the TCJA to right this wrong that they think has been done to them. The rhetoric being put out by President Biden uh, right now, as he's trying to negotiate with Republicans, he's making it sound as if he's wanting to reach across the aisle. He's making it sound as if bipartisanship is really important to him. And certainly the way that he's kind of dragged out these negotiations, perhaps that's very genuine. But don't let it fool you too much. There are plenty of Democrats making it clear they're going to pass something whether they get any Republicans to sign on or not. Exactly. And it's really tricky because some groups 
Democratic leaning groups are actually criticizing Biden for doing exactly what you said. People are saying that he's more concerned about reaching across the aisle and trying to be bipartisan than actually about implementing this infrastructure plan. And one of the things that we hear about all the time is things get tacked on to bills, right? So even though we're calling this a, quote, infrastructure plan, it also includes provisions related to things like climate change and the green economy. And some of the groups who really care about these interests are starting to worry that if the Republicans won't agree to the tax increases required to fund all of these initiatives, then something is going to get cut. And that means potentially upsetting some segment of the voters and, and possibly Democratic voters. So this is a, as you said, a very complicated political issue. And Biden is facing pressure from both sides of the aisle. Let's talk about where the Made in America tax plan started and how it has evolved already through these political negotiations. The great thing is that the White House tends to issue summaries of proposals and plans. So the White House issued what it calls a fact sheet on the Made in America tax plan in April of 2021. Um, It is by no means a sheet. It is a booklet. (laughs) So that booklet um, outlines the guiding principles, the guiding sort of tax policy objectives of the Made in America tax plan. And just to highlight a few of them, one is funding critical investments, building a fairer tax system that rewards investment in labor, and building a resilient and competitive economy. And Mm -hmm. I got to say, when you take a step back and you read these guiding principles, they all seem really laudable and desirable and like something that Democrats and Republicans should be able to agree to, right? Totally agree. They sound great. Who wouldn't want those things? The problem is, much like the guiding principles that were posted in the lead up to the passage of the TCJA back in 2017, you know, having a clear view of these great pie-in-the-sky policy goals uh, doesn't make it any easier to execute on them. So how will President Biden achieve these goals? And one of the ways is by increasing the corporate tax rate. Yes. And since you mentioned pie in the sky, now I just want pie. But me too. that's a digression. So back to taxes. For over a generation, the top U.S. corporate tax rate was right around 35%, which over time became one of the highest among developed countries throughout the world. That's right. Back in 2017, when the TCJA was passed, France was the only country, only developed country with a higher tax rate. They were a little bit above 44%. So President Trump wanted to reduce the rate to bring us in line with the average of developed economies, which he did. 21% was like right square in the middle of the average. And it was also really important to reduce our rate to make it more attractive for our own companies, our own U.S. multinationals to report profits at home instead of doing what they had been doing, which was shift them abroad to lower tax countries. And that needed to happen in in response to a lot of other changes under the TCJA to how the U.S. taxes multinationals on their foreign profits. And that is a subject of a whole other episode that we'll talk about at some other point in time. We will. So today, focusing on the tax rate, um, Biden's initial proposal 
was to increase the rate. He didn't want to go all the way back to 35%, but again, his initial suggestion was 28%. Mm -hmm. And raising the rate from 21%, which is where we are now, up to 28%, that's estimated to generate about $850 billion of additional tax revenue over 15 years. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the single biggest revenue raiser in the proposal. That's gonna, that alone would get him close to that trillion dollar goal that he has. Now, the thing is, Lisa, you and I both teach undergraduate taxes. Yep. So many of the questions I get from my students doesn't matter what the topic is. It's like, how did Congress pick this number? How did they, mm. what was the scientific method that went into <laughs> choosing this particular tax rate or this particular amount of a credit? And I get, I feel like I'm failing them because I never have a good answer. So what is so magical about 28%? All I can tell is that it splits the difference between where we are now at 21% and where we used to be at 35%, but that just does not feel satisfying. So I'm, I'm turning to you to see what better ideas you have about where 28% came from. And I'm going to fail you. I do not <laughs> have any better ideas here. It does kind of seem like it's pulled out of a hat. And one thing that I find particularly noteworthy about Biden's proposal is that it's not proposing to bring the rate all the way back up to 35%, which is where it was before Trump got involved. So already, straight out of the gate, it, it looks to me like this is almost a concession on the part of the Democrats that that 35% was too high. Totally. Right? They're not trying to get back to it. Now, 28%, how did they come up with that? I have no idea. It's still above the average for economically developed countries. And what's interesting, again, is that that 28% is, is starting to falter. Right. In negotiations about the infrastructure bill, the Democrats have offered to keep the corporate rate at 21 percent. So, you know, I'm just kind of reading between the lines here. But to me, it's looking like 28 percent really was something they pulled out of the hat, not because they thought that was the right answer, but because they needed an opening offer to try to get Republicans to come on board. So they never intended to keep it at 28. They just put it there knowing that they could let it go lower as a bargaining chip. It's basically all horse trading at this point. Why do you think that the Republicans are holding so firm on the tax rate and are so adamant about keeping it at 21%? It's an age-old question. Why are Republicans so against raising taxes? I think there are two key drivers of what I'm going to call Republican anti-taxism. The first is what Republicans say their reason is. That is that we need to keep the U.S. competitive in a world where companies can locate a factory or a service center in a lower cost, lower tax country. If we don't keep our corporate tax rate competitive, companies can move overseas and they're going to take their jobs with them. And under that logic, even though technically it's the government assessing an incremental tax on corporations, and it's supposed to be the corporations and their investors who are paying the bill, in the end, that bill is footed by the everyday Joe worker through lost wages, fewer job opportunities, having his or her job offshore. So true. And this was a big talking point for President Trump during his election. Mm -hmm. And this view of taxes was a pretty critical component of his, you know, make America great again tagline. No question. But there's also a second um, kind of older, more philosophical reason for why Republicans have their anti-taxism. And it goes back to this notion that Republicans are supposed to be the party of small government. 
and raising revenues through higher taxes so that you could have more government spending, that's big government. Further, if they're able to prevent tax hikes, then the government's budget gets pinched. And so they have a much stronger leg to stand on to say, well, we have to cut government spending, right? We we, We don't collect enough. And so we can't spend as much even though they're the ones who were saying we can't collect as much because we're not going to raise taxes. And never mind, empirically, the Republicans haven't exactly succeeded in being able to cut back on that spending. So they're perfectly willing to outspend what they collect. They've driven the largest increases in government deficits uh, by adding about 1% more by some estimates to the deficit as a percent of GDP each year they're in the White House compared to Democrats in the White House. You are definitely highlighting, again, this fundamental link between taxes and spending. And if you want to spend, you have to fund it one way or another. Let's talk about the good, bad, and the ugly of a proposed tax rate increase. Okay, this sounds like fun. I'm going to play against type and I'll talk about the good. Anyone who knows me knows that finding the good in a situation, not my strong suit, Bit of a pessimist. Bit of a pessimist. We'll see how it goes. Okay. So the good thing, I think, is what we we just finished talking about. I don't like to spend money that I don't have. And so mm. I think that it is good that we are talking about raising taxes to fund what I think most people on both sides of the aisle would consider is necessary spending. So I do think that there is support from both Democrats and Republicans that we do need to increase spending to some extent on some of the things outlined in this bill. The question is on what specifically and how are we gonna fund it? And if I think back to the deliberations around the TCJA, I recall, and you can correct me, but I recall many economists at the time thinking that such a large corporate rate cut was unnecessary given where our economy was at the time. And, you know, Republicans kind of countered by saying, hey, don't worry, the TCJA is going to pay for itself. These rate cuts are going to spur such economic growth that the increased revenue from that economic growth is going to make up for the tax cuts. But there's not a whole lot of research to support that. Um, So, for example, you know, there's one study by the Brookings Institute that concluded the TCJA didn't pay for itself. And on top of that, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these tax savings from the TCJA actually went to share buybacks instead of investments in jobs. So it's like you said, the Republicans want to argue that if you raise taxes, you're going to hurt, you know, Joe and Jane Worker. So the flip side of that should be if you lower taxes, you benefit Joe and Jane Worker. But I think there's at least a pretty strong contingent of people who would say that the tax cuts from the TCJA benefited Joe and Jane Investor. So with all of that in mind, I do think it's a good idea to revisit some of the provisions in the TCJA that may have been too generous. Yeah, that's a great point. And I know some would say right now that it's not the right time to raise taxes because of uncertainty around the global pandemic, shutdowns and things like that. But all the concern about economic growth that we've had over the last year, year and a half just simply hasn't borne out. We've we've seen the especially the rich economies continue to take off. The IMF has had to revise its growth rates for the richest economies in the world twice just this year because they kept underpredicting. They were too pessimistic. So we have a humming and drumming economy. It seems like it's just going to speed up more as folks get vaccinated and things open back up. 
And so that seems like a pretty good starting point for a conversation of, hey, maybe this is a good time to, to raise taxes. It's not a non-starter for sure. Okay, so that's the good. Let's move on to some of the bad aspects of a proposed tax rate increase. One of the potential problems with making major changes to corporate tax rules, having tax reform every few years, is that it can hamper investment. So Nick Bloom at Stanford has a whole bunch of research on this, along with others, that uncertainty about regulations, including tax law, can delay or even reduce corporate investment. And that makes sense because companies need to know the tax effects of investments so that they can figure out if the investment is worth it, if it'll generate positive cash flows, if they want to make the investment or not. And when tax rates and other tax provisions are constantly changing, it gets more difficult to make those projections, harder for them to pull the trigger and say, yep, this is worth it. We're going to do it. And I think it's safe to say that most people in the world don't want to think about taxes or talk about taxes as much or as often as you or I do. I've never understood that. <laughs> I'm not saying it makes sense, but I'm saying it's, it's a fact. So I imagine that this must be a very challenging time to be a corporate executive in this country because you're looking at your tax people for answers about what things are going to look like in the near future. And the tax people are looking back at you saying, I have no clue. It's not like all of the corporate tax directors are sitting in conference rooms, you know, wringing their hands saying, we want to know what the new rule is going to be so we can break it. That's not what we're talking about here, right? We're not talking about, I need you to tell me, you know, what the rules of the game are so I can start thinking about how to cheat. Yeah, that part comes later. Right. You need to come, that's why you need things (laughs) to evolve so you, you know how to break the rules. So even absent any tax planning or tax scheming or whatever you want to call it, you just need to know how much cash you're going to have left over at the end of the day after you've paid your taxes. And all of this back and forth with tax reform makes it harder for companies to do that. So that leaves the ugly, which to me is just the politics of all of it. I feel like Joe Biden is sort of between a rock and a hard place here. If he gives in to Republicans and he cuts spending on some of the initiatives that are in this American jobs plan, a lot of the Democrats aren't going to be happy. Some Democrats have already come out in the media and said that they won't vote in favor of a spending Mm -hmm. bill that gets trimmed any further. But if he doesn't compromise, he's not going to get the Republican votes needed to pass the legislation in a bipartisan way. And this was surprising to me, but a lot of recent polls show that the majority of registered voters think it's important for legislation to have bipartisan support. This was surprising to me too, but you're right. There's a strong preference for bipartisanship from voters, particularly on this infrastructure bill. So one of the polls you're alluding to, the Hill-Harris poll found 69% of voters believe it's more important for the infrastructure bill to pass with bipartisan support than for it to pass, pass quickly. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.